Welcome to the Breaking the Startups podcast, where we feature stories of people from non-traditional backgrounds who broke into tech. Today, we're speaking with Bengali Kaba. You probably first heard of Bengali's name back in episode 13, when Elena Koras mentored her mentor who coached her on getting her summer internship at Facebook. Originally from the East Coast, Bengali is now considered as one of the best product managers in tech. And on this episode, Bengali shares his story and how he broke into product management from a non-traditional background in education and finance. We also go into his early career and how he went from working in Switzerland to starting a men's fashion business, working at Facebook, and finally leading product management at Instagram. Now, I want to take a moment to thank you, our listeners, for taking the time out of your busy schedules and tuning into the Bringing Startups podcast. I want to give a shout out to Patrick Rivera, who just joined our team as a community manager. As you know, our Facebook community has grown to over 10,000 members, and Patrick reached out to us with some suggestions on how we can make our community stronger, and we loved his ideas and offered him to come on board. So Patrick is going to be helping us host weekly AMAs and expert panels that we're going to stream live on Facebook and give you an opportunity to join and ask questions in real time. We just did one this week on product management that already has over 10,000 views in the last 24 hours, which you could check out on our Facebook page. Now, without further ado, please enjoy this episode and let's break in. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table, getting eaten. Next. Yo, 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 this is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies Arjun Timo Meister, and this is the Breaking Stars podcast. Timo, can you please tell the people what we're doing today? Yes, yeah, so we're out here recording out of App Academy today. It's an Oscar Sunday. A lot of great movies have been nominated this year, like Hidden Figures, which are about black history, elevating voices, and doing things that have never been done before. And we're out here today with a great guest who is going to share his story and his journey and how he broke into product management. Arthur, can you please introduce the guest? Sure. Today, we're speaking with Bengali Kaba, who is one of the best product managers in the Bay. He's currently working as a product manager at Instagram. Before that, he was working on a growth team at Facebook. And you may have heard Bengali's name on episode 13 with Elena Koros, and she shares how Bengali mentored her and gave her some very actionable feedback that helped her land an internship at Facebook. So we're very lucky to have him here and hearing straight from the source. He's not from the Bay Area. He moved out here from Washington, D.C. and New York, so East Coast originally. And it's funny that we got connected with him through Jules Walter at Slack. So thanks, Jules, for the intro. Yeah, there's not a lot of uh, black PMs in the game, so it's awesome to see how much of a small world it is. Yeah, it was, a, it was amazing, actually, introduction and connection. Happy to be here, guys. Jules actually randomly reached out to me. I heard Elena's episode and thought it was amazing and then said to myself, oh, I'd, you know, I'd love to go on this podcast at some point and tell the other side of the story about like meeting Elena, but I'm super busy, so maybe I'll figure it out at some point. And then you know, a week later, I get an email from Jules saying, hey, you want to meet Ruben? This is amazing. You should go on this podcast. So it came full circle really quickly. Awesome. Awesome. And I, I think that's a, a great way to open talking about the other side of the story and mentorship and things like that. So why don't we start there? Yeah. So, I mean, I think Elena's story is a really interesting one. You know, Elena's 
super talented, but there's a, a million people who are still super talented. I happened to meet her again, just as a quick recap, at a recruiting event for Facebook at Georgetown. And she stood up and she said, you know, hey, I work, I'm studying journalism. Is there something for me? You know, and Elena's story really was a story of kind of preparation meeting opportunity where she spoke up. She actually had a voice. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a great content strategist on my team who had a journalism background and I reached out to her and we connected. And, you know, again, I think the thing that was unique about Elena was that she actually followed up. There's so many people who come up to me at these recruiting events and say, hey, I want a job in tech or, hey, I want to learn how to get in the product. I tell them, you know, here's my email address. Email me and I will help you out. And one out of 20 emails me. And it's, you know, they just miss out on the opportunity because I will invest in people if they, you know, if they're really interested. But, you know, Elena did it and she, you know, she really put a lot of effort and energy into her resume and getting the job. Yeah. yeah. So take us back when she did email you and I'm sure she was probably still in college. She didn't know exactly how the resumes worked, how the application process worked. What advice did you give her at that time? Yeah. So that was interesting. You know, I said to Elena and it sounded, and it was pretty funny. We laugh about it now. It sounded pretty harsh at the time, but I said to her, you know, your resume just isn't good enough right now. And I told her it wasn't her fault because, you know, when you think about it at a university, there are 5,000 kids in any graduating class and maybe a hundred people who work in the career services office. It's just like not possible to give people the right support at scale. And so I said to her, look, you know, this is okay, but it doesn't really show the value that you added. It didn't show what you did. And so I helped her and I gave her some really actionable steps in terms of how to quantify what she was doing, how to use action verbs, how to really think about what she was applying for and make her past experiences fit. And, you know, it was really just a quick iteration where I would give her advice she would fix it and she would get back to me. Yeah, that, that reminds me of some advice that I was given by one of my mentors to always put your bullets in into star format. So mm-hmm. like situation, task, action, result. Yep. And then making sure that those results are quantified and like you started here and like whatever the percent increases or decreases are depending on what the outcome is that you wanted to have. And so that's, that's pretty cool. Yep. And that's like simple advice that most people don't have. And so with Elena, we just went back and forth. And once she got her resume to a good place, she realized like, oh, okay. I guess I am a lot more competitive for this than I thought I was. And then I gave her some resources to read. I had her reach out to people. And basically this whole process, which is unique, was, you know, I kind of put my social capital on the line for her, but she proved herself every step of the way. So the more she proved herself, the more I was willing to help her to do the things that were going to give her to be more competitive for this role. Yeah. And Elena's example or her story is one of the great examples because she was coming from a journalist background and she was positioning herself for a completely different role, which was like content strategist. Mm -hmm. So what advice did you give her in terms of telling her story or crafting her resume so her skills are honed towards what the job requires? Yeah. So this is a great question. You know, I think with a lot of these jobs and job like jobs that are posted, people who are looking for jobs, they see square peg, square hole. Like I need to, you know, I'm a journalist and so therefore I can only apply to journalism things. Mm-hmm. When in reality, it's about mm-hmm. skills transferability. And so once I helped her to understand and identify the skills that they were looking for as mm-hmm. a content strategist and help her to uncover the value in, that she was creating in those same skill set. Then it just became a matter of, okay, now that we've been able to tell that story that you have these skills, how do we help you to position yourself? And how do we help you to prepare for the kinds of questions that may come in a little bit different of a format, but you have stories to answer those questions. And that's just like, that's, it's hard process because it's a little bit one-to-one. You need someone 
with a little bit of insider knowledge to help say, hey, this is how we think about this role. Mm -hmm. And this is how you think about what you're doing. And here's the connection. So it's a combination of reading the job description and then talking to someone that can tell you a little bit more about how to frame the skills that you currently have into that role. Yeah. This leads us actually into the next question, which is mentorship. And Elena got very lucky with mentorship, but something you've mentioned in the pre-interview is that you don't necessarily need a mentor to craft a story, craft a compelling story and show that your skills transfer from one job to another. Can you speak a little bit more about that and how you would go about doing that? Yeah. So I think mentors are amazing and everyone needs a mentor or a couple mentors throughout their career. But mentors are like an amazing outcome of a process where you're just trying to get advice and get informed. Right. And one of the things that I said to Elena, but I say to anyone who's looking for a job and I practice this myself, is you just need to go and like do what we call informational interviews. So if I was looking to get into engineering and I said, hey, I'm a non-technical background. Hey, Timor, like, can you help me to think through this? It's, you know, I get an intro for someone who I trust. Timor does it because, you know, I'm not asking him for a job. I'm just asking him for a little bit of advice. And I use his knowledge to help me to find a path. But you do that and Timor may say, hey, you know what? You, know, you need to go and like look at this program or you need to go talk to these people. And we just keep in touch. And in keeping in touch, basically opportunities arise. Opportunities arise because he may get an email saying, hey, there's this new program that you need to be aware of that he may forward to me or here's this job that may be helpful for you. But basically, you know, you as a job seeker need to be proactive and get advice from people. And that advice is pretty low cost. Mm -hmm. But what it does is it really helps you to clarify a path and it helps you to have direction towards getting the end goal. And sometimes out of all that advice seeking, you'll get a mentor, yeah. someone who finds you to be compelling and like takes interest in your story. But that's not necessarily the goal. Yeah. And I love the advice around informational interviews because it reminds me of my process, not just for tech, but for investment banking even, because uh, related to your point about preparation, meeting opportunity, a lot of times if you have the skills already and you ask for an informational interview that's not necessarily looking for your job, but you can tell your story in a way that demonstrates to the other person that you have the skills and are qualified, by the end of the conversation, they're going to be like, hey, by the way, do you want right. to work here? Right, right. It's amazing. And like, it's like, you know, people are really concerned and rightfully so if someone randomly reaches out to them and say, hey, can I have a job? But, you know, I like part of my story is that I ended up working on Wall Street coming from education and we can talk about that. But like, you know, a lot of my ability to get that job was really just building relationships across the street such that people were willing to take a, a chance on me by the time I was ready to apply. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you touched on a few things just now with the education on Wall Street and being on the East Coast. Why don't we take it back to why you even moved to the West Coast and know where that started? Sure. So my path to tech is actually a really interesting and different one. You know, coming out of college. So, you know, I grew up on the East Coast, immigrant parents, you know, in the 90s, and they were like, you know, study something that's going to make you some money, you know, like total typical immigrant parents, be a doctor, be a lawyer, uh -huh. do something concrete. From where, which country? My mom's from the Caribbean. I'm from like the small islands of Grenadines. And my dad's from West Africa, from Guinea and West Africa. Dope. And so, you know, it was one of those situations and tech wasn't really even a thing at that point. But as a kid, I was building computers in my room. I was coding with Visual Basic, but like that wasn't a career path. And so I went to college pre-med, but didn't really love it. And, you know, ended up either looking at consulting, but got a random opportunity to do what was called then DC Teaching Fellows, which was basically like a Teach for America, but in DC. So I ended up teaching for three years in inner city DC, like a second grade and fourth grade classroom. And then I was kind of burned out, but loved teaching still. 
and ended up going and working in Switzerland for three years as a dean of a boarding school, the American school in Switzerland. Um, and so I did that for three years. And I knew that my run when education was coming to an end because I loved it, but it just I didn't feel like it was the right challenge for me. And so did a lot of networking with friends from high school and college who were going to business school. I thought it was the right thing for me, but I wasn't sure. So I spent my summers between school kind of learning and then applied and went out to USC in business school. And when I was out there, studied a bit and ended up like majoring or concentrating in entrepreneurship and finance, working at Lehman Brothers right before they went bankrupt, and then working at Barclays Capital. Um, and I was, so I was working at Barclays from basically 2009 to 2011. And you know, my mom suddenly passed away, which was a terrible event in my life. And I kind of questioned like, what's going to make me happy? Where do I want to be? My girlfriend at the time, now wife, was in LA. So I decided to basically quit and come out to LA and do a tech startup. That's kind of what I felt like I wanted to be doing. But you know, this, if I was going to do it, now was the time. Did you use any of your visual basic skills while you were in finance? No, <laughs> not at all. But, you know, I'd, I'd been so it was interesting, like, you know, you, you know, your life kind of dictates the skills that you develop over time. And I'd always been really strong in math and science, but basically stopped studying math after my first year of college. And so by the time, you know, like part of my story was that, you know, the, the education part really helped me with the notion of communication. How do you communicate to stakeholders who you know, have nothing necessarily invested and you have to influence the, like have, you know, influence with your leadership? Yeah. You know, like the hardest thing I've ever done is managing a classroom of 24 seven-year-olds, right? Like I've sat in boardrooms with CEOs, yeah. you know, I've done a, you know, I've managed, you know, relationships with billionaires as like an asset manager, but like, you know, getting 24 seven-year-olds to do what you want to do and really take interest in like their livelihood is by far the hardest thing. Yeah. Shout, yeah. Out, shout out to teachers. Shout out to teachers. Hardest, most important job there is. Yeah. Most underpaid job there is. So take us to, uh, take us back to LA. So you moved out of there, you start working your business. Yep. Give us a little bit of a perspective of what it's like to be an entrepreneur coming from the finance world and then what eventually led you from that experience into Silicon Valley and tech. Maybe sure. how your father felt about that too, given sure. the circumstances. My father was amazing, actually. My father was like, look, you know, just do what you need to do to be happy. Like, you know, he, my parents were always my enablers and always believed that, you know, whatever decision I was making, I was pretty informed about it. And so that was actually never an issue for me. He said I was actually fantastic. You know, being an entrepreneur was really interesting because one, especially in LA, the notion of being an entrepreneur mm -hmm. is like, oh, you don't have a job. You're just like a beach bum. Right? Like, it's, that's still the thing in LA. Like you're Sil Silicon Beach, right? Silicon Beach, right. But like that was at the, be the beginning of Silicon Beach. You know, it was hard. It's hard because, you know, I don't have a technical background, but I pick up things quickly. So I had to, you know, I had an idea for a business and I had to basically build V1 by myself. What was that idea? And so I am, um, so the idea was basically a subscription e-commerce company for men. This was pretty early on. And so we were an early competitor to the trunk club. The oh. company was called Unscruff. And the notion behind it was um, that we could both provide a better service to guys so that they don't have to go shopping because we know that guys don't spend money on clothes, even though they're half the population, mm -hmm. but also maybe build a fashion graph using machine learning of the, like, so we basically taxonomy measurements of clothing and basically make the whole sourcing process easier for clothing. And I came up with this because I'm six foot eight. Buying clothes is like the <laughs> hardest thing in the world. And, you know, when I was trying to figure out something I'm passionate about, I realized that I spent a disproportionate amount of time shopping because it's so hard for me to find things. Mm -hmm. And all of my friends' girlfriends are like, hey, what should I buy my boyfriend to wear? And I became this like fashion connoisseur, not because I love fashion, just because I couldn't find clothes that would fit me. Yeah. 
And so like just that whole thinking about like that whole problem set was really something that was like, I'm willing to invest my own time and money in doing this thing. Yeah, that's awesome because I literally live next door to Trunk Club and our photographer, Max Haas, actually started a clothing company called Treats that he sold to Trunk Club. Oh, really? And so it's actually very like, interesting that you say you learned a lot, of, a lot of things through that process and he shared those with us. What are some of the biggest things that you learned through that process, solving that problem? So that was actually really interesting. Starting a startup gives you a lot of insight into the world of psychology, actually, because you are basically building something on a hunch and you've got to then go and understand how to get product market fit. So we spent a lot of time doing customer development and going to people's, going to guys' homes, seeing what they wear versus what they say they wear. For the people that don't know, what's product market fit? Product market fit, good question, is like getting your product to a state where it is adopted and there's like strong retention. And it is basically just like, you know, I don't want to say the word viral because that's not really the goal of product market fit, but it's solves a core need for the customer set and it does it in a way that allows it to scale really easily. So usually a product that has product market fit has, once you find kind of the core customer set, you have what we call steady state retention. So you'll see retention at 25%. So 25% of all the people who sign up will come back again and again on whatever the, the cadence is, monthly, quarterly, whatever it is. So you don't want to focus on growth until you have product market fit. Exactly. Got it. Yeah. A lot of our listeners, some of them might be interested in startups. Some of them have this notion that they have to go out and start a company. Some of them think that it's better off working for a company for a few years and then starting their own. Mm -hmm. um, you having done it, have done both paths. What would you advise and what were the trade-offs? So, I mean, it really is dependent on your situation and mm -hmm. where you're coming from, what your background is. I think if you ever have the opportunity to go to an early startup mm -hmm. or start your own startup, starting your own startup is obviously a lot of risk, like of your own time and money. But if you ever have a chance to go to an early startup, um, especially for one that have founders have done this before, mm -hmm. it's just a tremendous learning opportunity. You know, there is startups need athletes, not specialists. They need people who can, you know, on Monday work and do customer service on Tuesday, worry about like, you know, shipping if there's like actual physical goods or like website maintenance on Wednesday, think about like, you know, what's the next customer acquisition strategy. And if you are there and you're smart and you're capable and you're hungry, you'll learn so many things. And this is why a lot of people say, if you want to get into product, you should go work at a startup because you may start in an adjacent you know, mm -hmm. field, but you'll get product experience very quickly. Yeah. Do you have any advice? Because when I was finishing up college, I wanted to find that early stage startup and go there and work for it. How do people find, what advice do you have for people to find those type of startups? Um, good question. And so, how do you prove yourself? How do you tell your stories so they actually give you that shot? Okay. So finding them, I think there's, I mean, it's easier to do now, um, I think, than before. So a lot of, like you can go Google search top VC companies and mm -hmm. the VC companies will actually put their portfolio companies on the website. And so you can see like, you know, what stage they are and like how much funding they've gotten when they were formed. So that's an easy mm -hmm. way to do it. Um, another way is Crunchbase. I don't know if you yeah, um, we know. listeners. Are Shout familiar. out to Jonathan Schieber. Yes. So, so Crunchbase is great. You can do a search by region. And another way is just really just like going to this, like, you know, if you're in New York, Silicon Alley, if you're in Silicon Beach, if you're in Silicon Valley, there's a lot of tech recruiting events for you to go to and text um, meetups. So meetup.com is great. And just go to like meet people and hear what's going on. Or the breakout list and things like that. Yep. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So a lot of opportunities there. And I think, you know, for proving yourself, I mean, that's always hard, right? Like, I mean, it depends on the stage. Normally, if you can go, if you have the opportunity to go and you're like, look, I'll work for whatever it is that you can offer me, but I'll prove myself. Yeah. That's the easiest way in the door. 
If you have direct experience to what they're looking for, then certainly apply. But you know, the younger the company, the hungrier they want people to be. Yeah, it definitely makes sense because that stage, uh, if you can come in and move the needle on day one, then they almost have no risk not to give you that shot because you could potentially like bring in a ton of users or a ton of revenue. And if it doesn't work out, then there's very little downside. So that's awesome advice. So take us to how you actually ended up at Facebook. So you were doing the startup. What made you realize that you wanted to look for other opportunities at uh, other tech companies in Silicon Valley? Weren't there some things before Facebook, like DirecTV and things yes. like that? Yeah, yeah. So basically my startup, after like 18 months, we just mm-hmm. realized that we just weren't moving the needle. You know, the model of working with fashion companies, even though we tried to de-risk it as much as possible, just wasn't sustainable. Customer traction was good, but wasn't amazing. And we couldn't go out and basically raise the money that we wanted to raise. You know, there was just not the appetite with VCs for any more subscription e-commerce because this was right when Birchbox and a bunch of other companies were blowing up. And we, I think we were like probably six to 12 months too late in that cycle. I mean, so we ended up closing shop, which was painful. I mean, there's like nothing worse than putting your name on the door than closing it down. Yeah. But, you know, it was a necessary thing to do and you learned a lot, a lot of reflection. And so then I bounced to an opportunity at DirecTV. They had a digital innovation lab at the time mm-hmm. and they were trying to think about what the next phase of their kind of product offering would be to customers, especially since they didn't own content. They kind of saw this imminent threat from HBO Go and from Netflix. And knowing that, you know, kind of the set-top box was going to be a commodity, how did they position themselves? So they kind of hired me in a consulting role at the time to help them think through new product opportunities. And so I did that. And that was actually a really nice way to land on my feet because it gave me some financial stability. I spent a lot of money of my own money and just like, you know, there's a lot of opportunity costs. But then it also helped me to codify a lot of the things that I learned as an entrepreneur into real processes without having to worry about like, where's the next investor check coming from? Like, how am I going to pay for the next meal or whatever it is? So you, you, know, you got like a lot of your survival taken care of. And so I was actually able to like think through, hey, like here's all these skills about customer development or like product management or leadership that I can put into place at this company and actually refine my skill set. And I did that for about a year. I wasn't super happy at DirecTV. They treated me super well. It just wasn't a good fit. And then at the time, Google actually reached out to interview me. And so I was going through this crazy lengthy interview process with Google. And it really kind of forced me to up my interviewing game, just thinking about like how to structure my answers, how to think through this hard kind of questions. And I reached out to a friend at Facebook at the time and said, hey, I'm interviewing at Google. Do you think you, know, you can refer me at Facebook? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how it just happened. Can you talk about the challenging Google interview process and type of questions you were asked? Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to. I don't know if this is actually true at the time because this was back in 2011. But, you know, Google had a process back then that was very much, you know, like uh, a lot of questions to see how you think and the logic of how you think. And some of them, I mean, I think I did like 11 interviews over four months with them. And, you know, one, I remember one question, which was particularly crazy to me, was like, they asked me like how, actually, I don't think I can say the question probably do the NDA now I think about it. But they basically asked me like how to think about a really big problem of like scaling a service and like quantify it and the cost of it. Like at, it. like a really micro level. So was something it, that's was like, it kind of like a brain teaser? Yeah, it was kind of like a brain teaser. But the challenge was, was like it's not something that you really think about mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis. 
I mean, that was like, it was one question like that. It was me and a guy in an interview room with a whiteboard. And I did, I think I did the question. Yeah. So it's similar to kind of like the questions that they ask in consulting interviews. Yes. That's so that's exactly, it's a great call out because after my first couple phone interviews with Google, I realized having fortunately been to business school that it was exactly like consulting interviews. And so I was like, oh man, I haven't done these in a while. And I went to this website, caseinterview.com Got it. to go and like brush up on that whole structure of answering questions. And the vault guys are probably pretty helpful for that. Too. Yeah. So the vault, I've, but I just, for some reason I just fell into case interview. Yeah. And then, you know, I think there's a lot of resources like that. And you know, the call out here isn't that case interview or the vault gives you the right answers, but what it did give me was the structure of how to think through, how to like lay out a framework mm-hmm. and a logic for answering the question, how to dig through the different arms of the framework. Can you share some of that framework or like if you were to go through an interview process again, and you were trying to prepare kind of what would be that framework of solving because obviously there's no right around or uh, there's probably boundaries but there's no right or wrong answer for these type of like broad questions but how do you approach laying out like this framework in a logical manner so i won't give you my secret sauce but i will (laughs) tell you one so what i basically i came up with a redacted version from my own of what basically there's an ebook called decode and conquer Mm-hmm. And Decode and Conquer is an ebook that just talks about like breaking into PM interviews. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they have a framework of like how to think through like users and user needs and features and a bunch mm-hmm. of other stuff. And I think it's a fairly good one. It's pretty long, but like I just have a shortened version of that. Mm-hmm. But I think at its core, if you're going to do a product management interview and you're trying to break out a, a product idea, you really need to be able to talk about like who's using the product, like what are their needs, what are the constraints. And how do you think about like the right features and trade-offs and mm-hmm. how do you measure success, mm-hmm. right? Like that's basically the core. There's yes. a lot more that goes into it, mm-hmm. but you know, that in and of itself is actually pretty challenging. Yeah. That's a great framework. And so you get this intro from your friend to Facebook mm-hmm. and was it a piece of cake? You got the job, no interviews? Was the interview no? at Facebook similar to Google's? No, no, definitely different. So a lot shorter interview process, a lot tighter interview process at Facebook and you know, it was hard. I mean, it was challenging, but it was actually, I felt like for me, it was more representative of the work that I was going to be doing mm-hmm. there. And so I, yeah, I, again, it was like preparation meeting opportunity. Lux, we're in preparation meetings. I just happened to be really prepared at the time because the Google interviews overlapped and the opportunity was like there, but you know, it was, you know, basically three in-person interviews and like two, I think video interviews before that. And, you know, they interview for basic things, product sense, leadership and like your ability to think through execution. I like that you bring up leadership and I know you can't say the types of questions that they ask, but you know, leadership is something that's talked about a lot out here, mm-hmm. even though there's not enough of it. So how do you think about leadership? It's a good question. You know, personally, I think so leading is it's the good and the bad, right? Most people will talk about like their ability to lead a team and having had success, but really the best leaders are the leaders that can lead teams through failure or lead through teams through challenging times. So it's like, it's really about buildings. And one dimension is how do you build those relationships and build those relationships where you are truly investing in your team, your cross-functional team, so that they see you as a partner and see you as always having their best, like kind of the best interest at heart. How do you think about communication and the challenges of communication, both, you know, for different types of stakeholders? Like, how do you talk to a C-level? How do you talk to a designer? How do you talk to an engineer? But then also thinking about like, how do you transmit like the words in terms of like, are you proactive? Are you really thinking about kind of what are the implications of how you phrase these things? And I think the real dimension of leadership that I think is really necessary for being a great product manager is being able to help the team 
stay focused and believe in the mission, especially when the going gets tough, right? Sometimes, you know, it's great to always ship things that win, but, you know, 50% of the times you ship things that don't win. Sometimes it's more, it's more than that. And, you know, what happens when you fail? How do you message that? How do you keep the team to realize that there were a lot of good learnings here? How do you make sure that you learn so that the next time you don't make the same mistakes, even if it is a failure? Yeah. Yeah. And it reminds me of, you know, a common adage that a lot of people talk about where they say, you know, even a product manager is like a mini CEO of a company, but you have a different take on that, even though it's similar, um, it's related to leadership. So can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I've, that's a great call out. I've never actually believed the notion that product managers are mini CEO because I think the notion of a CEO is one where people believe that you're calling the shots. Like as a product manager, you're not in a room saying, hey, we're going to do this and we're not going to do that without any like one pushing back on you. It's more often that you are like facilitator and enabler of your team. You're the captain of the ship, but you really rely on all hands to make sure the ship is functioning and going in the right direction. And you've got to get buy-in. And so I spend a lot of my time not only thinking about like what the strategy and the direction of the product is, but getting buy-in across you know, the entire team that like, this is the right thing to do. And we're thinking about all of the right situations and edge cases and ways to proceed forward. In that regard, like you're less of a CEO and you're more like, I don't know. Like a coach? Like a co- yes, yeah. like a coach. Exactly. And, and a lot of times, even though you may not be making all the decisions kind of like a CEO does, when things are going well, you know, that's cool. But when things are going, not going so well, you kind of got to motivate the right. team like totally. a coach does totally. and like a leader does. And so, totally. Gotta, and the okay. best coaches you remember, like the coaches who were like, you know, your team is down 20 points and you are like coaches you back to that huge win and you feel yeah. great. And like, and you did it, but you know that the coach was behind you, but you know that like you can take credit for the victory yourself. Yeah. Even right. though, even though I felt really bad during the Super Bowl and the loss for the Falcons, I wonder what the coach told Brady and the rest of the team during that third quarter that brought them back Active. into right. creating something that never had been done before. Yeah. So right now you're a product manager on Instagram's team. Can you give us a brief overview of what does that job entail? Like what, what do you do on a daily basis when you come in into the office? Sure. So I'm, I'm a product manager at Instagram now and I actually I'm helped to lead part of the growth team. Um, and so growth is a notion that actually Facebook kind of created where our job is to help remove barriers to entry for product adoption. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's a lot of things that um, you know, a user may struggle with to basically sign up for or stay retained or, or find value in the product. And so it's our job to think about those things. Can you define growth? When you say, well, so when we think about growth, we mean like basically monthly active people. That's, you know, that's the metric that we care about. And as a corollary, also daily active people. So our team is, is gold against like, how many people can we bring to Instagram? And how do we get them, those people to find value and stay on Instagram? Can you give us an example of a project that you've worked on and then kind of what a PM would do in that case? and To remove uh, those barriers. Yeah, to remove so those that. barriers. Sure. I won't go into like a lot of details per se, but like, you know, just even in signing up for an app, mm-hmm. right? Signing up for an app just seems like a very simple experience mm-hmm. at a high level. But the challenge is, is that, you know, people use apps very differently in different parts of the world. So we think about the world as like an iOS-driven world where people use iPhones. We're on these awesome 4G networks. We have Wi-Fi everywhere that we can bounce on and off. When in reality, a lot of people who are signing up for a lot of the world's biggest apps are actually in markets like in Mumbai or in Delhi or in Tokyo or in other places. Mm-hmm. And there's language adoption issues. There's cultural issues. There is privacy issues that they're concerned about. 
Um, and so a simple example is like, you know, getting people to just even input their phone number correctly. When I lived in Switzerland for three years, it was rare that I actually used the country code in country, right? Mm-hmm. Country code's 41, but in Switzerland, you can just type in seven or whatever, right? And so when you're signing up for an app, is the number that you're used to dialing for your own number the way it's represented, right? Can we actually do things like pre-fill the phone number for you? Because one error is a big deal. And if you have millions of people going through your registration flow every day, even if you have one out of 100 errors, that's a lot of errors and a lot of people who don't end up registering, right? So how do we like pre-fill your phone number so it's actually easier for you to get through that step? How do we make sure that if you get an SMS to confirm your phone number, it's always delivered and there's no issues with deliverability because of the network that you're on? Yeah. And as a product manager, how do you gather that kind of data? Do you do a B test or... I can imagine you guys have millions of users coming through, but what is the role of a product manager when it comes to kind of drawing the insight out of all the data that's coming in? Yeah. So, I mean, so we do, every company does A-B tests. There's a lot of data. And as a product manager, it's my job to kind of help the team to focus on what are the right things that we should be working on at a high level? What's the right things to be working on? What does the data help us to understand? Mm -hmm. And how do we prioritize the things that are going to be most impactful Mm -hmm. for the needs of our users? And so all of this data is at a really high level. It's like, you know, how many people are going through this step a day? How many people are like entering this mm-hmm. flow a day? And then using from this high level data, we can really f- identify opportunities to improve the product. And so I will work with the data scientists to think about, okay, how do we think about the data? How do we think about the data mm-hmm. from different dimensions? And then I'll work with our growth marketer to say like, all right, how do we think about what's going to be the most impactful? I may work with our designer to say, all right, how do we think through these flows and making sure that they actually are the most performant for the hypotheses that we have. Got it. It sounds like there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. You know, you're the product manager, you're the coach, and you're excited about this feature and you just have this gut instinct that we need to do this to remove the barrier. It sounds like it's a bunch of arguments with a bunch of people to convince them. Like, how do you work through managing those discussions with people and be like, this is what we need to do? Or is there like a specific flow that you follow for that? That's a good question. I mean, there's actually not many arguments. We don't really argue so much, which is amazing. I think, you know, for us, like, especially in, on growth, but I think in general, like the, we let the data tell the story. There's going to be cases and rare cases when you need intuition. But, you know, when you have a product that's actually established that has users, there's a lot of data that you can use to help you to decide how to think and move forward. Um, and so, you know, data wins arguments, right? So if you lead with data, there are no arguments. And so, more often than not, it's really about, you know, I think a lot of the challenges come in where we're trying to decide how to think about what's actually a priority and how to think about what we want to invest in versus what we want to understand more, right? And so, you know, you, there's always a backlog of a thousand product ideas. There's always something that looks really appealing. But, you know, in order for us to be really efficient and impactful with our resources, we need to make sure we have a really clear understanding of what's happening um, before we start working on it. And so sometimes it's more like, hey, we see, you know, just make up something hypothetical. We see that like nine out of every 10 people who register for Instagram don't see, you know, don't have enough connections in order to like have a good feed, right? It's a hypothetical idea. We should do this, right? Someone might say, we should do this. We should build a product or a feature. But I may say as a product manager, well, wait, what data do we have to show that building this feature is actually the right thing to do? We might want to understand who these people are a little bit better. 
Is this true on Android and iOS? Is it true only in the US or in emerging markets? Is it true like for people who just signed up? Or is it true only for people who were signing up for signing up like two years ago? Right. And so like by really understanding what's happening, we can say, oh, this is like something that just broke recently. This isn't something we need to build. We just need to fix a bug. Right. Or hey, this is only happening on Android. So maybe there's something unique to our Android experience that we need to investigate. And this is something that's applicable, not just for companies that are established like Facebook that has billions of users, but also companies that are earlier stage before oh, for they sure. have. For it. sure. I mean, yeah. I think, you know, it's really important. I think a lot of times people will rush to justify building something that they've identified without really thinking about, do they actually know why it's happening? Mm-hmm. Right. And have they really figured out and what the data is telling them or what the user is telling them if they have to go do user research? Yeah. And in the pre-chat, you mentioned that some of the challenges of being um, of breaking into a product management role is you do need to have the ability to interact with so many different stakeholders like engineers, UX uh, designers, data scientists. From your experience coming from uh, like running your startup, working for DirecTV, how did you go about acquiring those skills? And what skills would you say you brought to the table before you joined? And what skills did you develop while doing the job? That's a good question. So learning how to, I mean, there's really no substitute for being kind of in the seat to learn how to talk to different people. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of great blog posts out there that help to give different stakeholders empathy for different mm-hmm. Roles, right? So, like, I think one of the VPs of design at Facebook, her name's Julie Zhu. Yep. She writes a lot of great blog posts of like PMs. How do you think about you know, communicating with designers? What are their priorities? How do they receive the information you give them? And she'll give a blog post from the other side of designers. How do you think about communicating with product managers? And that's great. Like, I think those are fantastic, but sometimes it's really hard to take that context and really internalize it unless you have a way to practice it, right? And so, you know, fortunately for me, as when I did my own startup, what basically happened is I didn't have any resources, right? It was just me. It was a one-man show. And this happens a lot to non-technical founders, right? Like you have an idea, what do you do? And so you have to prove some kind of traction in order to get a technical co-founder to like want to believe in you. Then you have to prove like some kind of resources to get hire more people, right? And so I basically was super scrappy. And, you know, I had a friend who needed some help thinking about his business. He had a consultancy of designers and I worked with those guys and they did some of the design for me. And they helped me to really refine a bunch of my language around like design and how to think about it. And likewise, it's like my co-founder of Unscuff helped me to really think about like technical and building databases and scaling. And so, you know, you have to, even if you don't have the people on your team, you can go to meetups, you can go read the blogs, you can go talk to people, especially if you're sitting in a co-working space ever. And you can get that language mm-hmm. and then learn how to apply it. Yeah. And uh, when it comes to breaking into a product management role, some of the other product managers and people who teach product managers how to break in, they've said that they either do like an internship or they switch to a product management role laterally from maybe a customer success role. From your experience, have you seen that happen over someone just coming in from a non-traditional background and getting a job? And if so, like, what kind of advice would you give our listeners? It's a good question. Getting into product is very hard. It's unfortunate. I, I wish I could demystify it like, clearly for everyone. I think, as we mentioned, a bunch of the challenges are that you just have to be so cross-functional and mm-hmm. be able to go like, a mile wide and like, maybe three inches deep. I think you know, I've seen some people 
a handful of people go from non-traditional straight to product, but those handful of people tend to have had some kind of technical background. So maybe some engineering degree. Mm -hmm. It might not be CS, but like electrical engineering, mechanical, something like that. And then just be you know, a tinkerer in the background, right? Like they've built a couple websites. Um, they've built some apps because it's fun. They've, you know, uh, helped at startups, right? They just have enough. They've gotten enough exposure to have mm -hmm. the product sense. And to think about like, oh, you know, I've done a, a lot of small failures and I can think about how to measure success, how to like some of the constraints of the engineering things. Um, and they have just enough. And so I think that's one path, just having a, like a background and then tinkering. I think another path is definitely going into consulting. I think consulting is big because it teaches you how to think about things in logical frameworks. And that's really important for product, right? Like you want people, the difference between a real product manager and what I call like a Monday morning quarterback is that a real product manager can actually solve problems in a repeatable and scalable way versus, you know, your friend who's like, hey, this thing on Facebook sucks, right? And this is what you should do. But they have no concept of, well, who is that solving a problem for? Like, what happens if you change that thing? What happens to our feed? What happens to our revenue? What happens to our features? What happens to, like, the clarity of language? They don't think about the whole ecosystem, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, as a consultant, especially in a lot of fields, you're really thought to think through all of the arms of the business. You're thought about thinking things in a logical and rigorous way. And especially if you're in consulting and you have any tech companies as your background, you will get a lot, like, of great insight. So you'll see, like, if you ever do a casual scan of LinkedIn, you'll see a lot of actually really senior PMs who have been in consulting at some point. So I think that's another way. And then I think a third way, which is less traditional, but like doable, is definitely going through a startup. Customer success is an easy one, but whatever it is, if you're in a startup that's early stage with good founders, just being there, being in the seat, being curious, learning is a great way. And it's not that you have to stay at that startup for five years. You can go learn a bunch, but then maybe migrate to another startup that's willing to take you on as a PM, right? But, you know, startups are literally like being thrown in the pit. You're going to learn all the things as fast as you can, and you're going to be better for it. Awesome, awesome. So that's really great advice. And during the pre-chat, you also mentioned, you know, you get a lot of emails because people see you as a mentor and that you tend to send them an email that kind of lays out a playbook for them to follow, even though it's not so clear for product management. Can yep. you kind of go over what you send them in that or what that contains? Sure. I mean, I think so. One, like I felt you know, looking back at it, I felt really lucky to have started my startup when I did because you know, I think the culture of blogging around tech really picked up around like the late 2000s. And so now if you go and you know where to look, there's just a ton of amazing resources out there for people to learn all these skills that were otherwise like highly fragmented and just like locked in people's heads. And so I, as a startup founder, I was just reading voraciously because I just didn't know what to do, right? Like I just, you know, even though I had an MBA, it's like this was a different world and I didn't know how to think about product or building a startup at the time. And so I relied on a couple of blogs. Here's a couple of them. One is like Andrew Chen, who's now at Uber, andrewchen.co. Um, he talks about strategy, product marketing, and just covers a wide variety of topics, but it's really just thorough. One of my favorites, which I think is pretty unknown, is this guy, his name's Rob Fitzpatrick. He's in London now. I mean, he has a blog called The Startup Toolkit. And his whole blog is just about customer development. How do you go out and ask customers things that will give you insights into what their real needs are and what are the things that you actually need to do? And one of the things that was like, I always take from Rob is, you know, customers don't know the answer. 
they will tell you what to do, but they actually don't know the answer, right? Like, and I think he said, you know, if you asked someone in 1900s, do they want to fast a horse or a car? They'll say I fast a horse all the time, mm-hmm. right? But what was super interesting is that, you know, I learned from Rob, like you have to ask people, well, what if I gave you this thing that you're telling me I need about, what would that do for you, right? And the mm-hmm. what would that do for you will actually tell you what they're trying to solve for. Got it. And it's your job as a product manager to figure out what people are trying to solve for and figure out the best way to solve it for them. And I still say, say this to my team to this day. I'm like, don't listen to what they tell you to do because that's not actually what you need to do. Yep. And then sometimes they look at me like I'm crazy and then I explain it. They're like, okay. There's a blog called platformed.info. It's by a guy named Sangeet Chudari. And it's just about internet business models. Super, super interesting. Things about like all the worlds of platform business models. And so that one was great. There was a blog. And again, I haven't even read these blogs in a couple of years. I think they're still going. But if not, they're still there and they have like a ton of information already. Yeah. There's one by a guy named Ash Mayura. It was called Practice Trump's Theory. And it was about just early stage product development and how do you like really put things into practice. Um, so that was amazing. Uh, Sean Ellis is very well known. He was first marketing employee at Dropbox. So startup-marketing.com, Sean Ellis's blog. Is he the same guy that started the growth marketing thing? Yes, Growth, growth Hackers Conference. I'm actually going to be at that in LA in, in late May. Um, and then the UX crash course, which is what Elena talked about, is one just like for a PM, just understanding user experience. Mm-hmm. So this one was, uh, it's run by this website, thehipperelement.com. And they have this like 30 part UX guide, which is basically, I think like for me, it's just like the Bible of like just learning the basics of user experience and visual design. Beautiful. Sounds like uh, we have a lot of reading to do. Yeah. I'm going to include that in oh, the show. One more. Go ahead. So there's another one called Conversion XL. I'm like extra large, which is basically all about A-B testing. Awesome. Awesome. No, we'll, we'll include all that in the show notes. And something that you touched on when you started going through this email that you sent to people that jumped out to me was this notion of information locked in people's heads. I mean, the fact that you've been in education for so long before getting to this space. I know Arthur talked to you about it in the pre-chat around the fact that our current education system can't keep up with the pace of technology to prepare us for the job of the future. But we would love to learn your thoughts about education and these alternative models and these blogs that exist. And just your thoughts on that right now. Yeah. So this is super interesting. I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting to me to watch now as like an outsider to the world of education, how, you know, if we are really preparing kind of the youth and kids for a world that's rapidly changing, that's becoming highly technical, but we're not actually, you know, fundamentally our, I think our curriculum set isn't changing at all. There's a ton of value of learning the classics, you know, doing humanities and all those things. And I think I'm not eschewing us moving away from that model, but I do think that there is a world where that model is also has more technical training involved from the start and knowing that people will need to be more technical because a lot of jobs are just going to be automated over time. So a friend of mine who was a former coworker of Facebook, his daughter goes to the Con Lab School down in Mountain View. I heard about it. And, you know, he was just telling me that, you know, his nine-year-old or however old, she's like eight-year-old, part of her curriculum is project management. And she has to, they literally give her like a grid per week and every, and like in the grid shows like her time after school and she has to show like what she's planning to do at each time. And then she has to write like a reflection at the end of the week of did she meet her goals and not, and like what the things she can do better. But, you know, he basically described it in a way where he said, you know, this is going to be a situation where next year they like 
it becomes more complex and more complex to the point where by the time she graduates from middle school, she's basically going to be like a really great project manager, <laughs> like I'm ready to go, like do the project management work out of like a product manager. That's awesome. You know, and that's something that like, you know, it makes sense to teach your kids like time management in this way, but it's also thoughtful enough to have them so that they actually have that skill. So like, you know, I went to a school that like had me reading Greek tragedies and stuff in high school and that's great. But like, I wonder nowadays, like by the time my kids get to high school, are they going to have the opportunity to be learning C++ and Java and Ruby and everything else in addition to project management, in addition to reading philosophy? So maybe like you could take these subjects about Greek mythology, for example, and just wrap it with like project management, some engineering skills, so maybe build a game around it, whatever, so you could develop the other skills in addition to that. It's kind of like, what do you think? There's got to be something here, right? Like I think there's critical thinking that goes on from humanities, but there's also just a world of just like get things done technical skills that you also need exposure to before you hit college in order to be successful. Yeah. In the and a lot of it also comes down to the growth mindset. You mentioned yourself that throughout your life, you navigated different career paths. You had to learn a lot. And in this day and age, something that you might have learned five years ago is probably not as applicable. So you, you always have to be learning, reading blogs, doing all of those things. When it comes to getting your MBA, a lot of people are thinking, I guess a lot of people might be in investment banking now. Maybe they're an analyst or an associate. They're thinking between doing tech or getting an MBA. What is your perspective on that? And also, how much of the things that you've learned during your MBA do you apply on your day-to-day job? That's a great question. So I think MBA, I don't regret having gone and gotten my MBA at all. I think it definitely helps me to think about the world in a more rigorous way and like understand kind of just core business principles. But I will say that I think the vast majority of MBA programs aren't structured for people to come out and become product managers. I'm just not what they're there for. You know, business school drops you into thinking mode of like coming into a company that has like a 40-year track record and you're trying to help to improve it or help it to find new business strategies, new monetization opportunities. It's rarely ever, even if they have an entrepreneurship program, it's not like tech entrepreneurship. Hey, I want to open up a brick and mortar store. How do I think about the accounting and you're making sure that like I stay solvent? And so in that regard, you know, I found myself when I, even though I had an MBA, when I started my own startup, that I had to learn a whole new set of skills and a whole new way of thinking about surviving in a, like a digital economy. And so for people who are thinking about going to business school, you know, I would really challenge them to not do that if they're doing it just for the purposes of going into tech. I think if you have an engineering background to some extent and you ended up at one of the Bay Area MBA programs, maybe like a Stanford or Berkeley you have a better chance, but I don't think that's actually what you need. Um, I think you just need to go and do the work around smart people mm-hmm. and just learn. And most of the PMs, I think at Facebook, anecdotally, I don't think, I think most of them do not have MBAs. Got it. That's, that's good feedback. And probably there, in addition to the skills, learning how to optimize a bigger company is you also get access to a network and yes. a brand on yeah. your resume. I mean, the network is critical. Okay. So that's, I mean, if there's one thing I take away from business school, it's definitely the network. I mean, my last four jobs have come from my network. So like, you know, Even can't you- knock that. My wife came from, from business school. Okay. So can't knock that either. But like, you know, it's definitely, it's not the, I think that we'll get there, but you know, academia tends to move slower yeah. than the real world. And just to throw the other side out there, just since we're covering it, it's like some people would argue if you move to the Bay Area and you work at a startup that's backed by top tier investors with people that have done it before you could essentially get the same network that you would from a Stanford MBA or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, I think that you know, I'm still at Facebook, but like were I ever to leave, you know, 
I know that I know a ton of fa- what we call Facebook alumni yeah. who are a lot of amazing companies now. And so the network would be strong. Got it. Yeah. So at this point in our podcast, we do the lightning round and you might, might, might have heard it on Elena's episode, but what we do is we ask you a series of questions and pr- try to provide short answers that are filled with tactics and your resources that you've used to get to where you are today. Sure. Arthur, take it away. Yeah. So imagine that you move to a brand new city. You're starting from scratch again. You don't know anyone and you only have $100 in your pocket. What would you do and how would you spend that $100 to get back on your feet? Great question. I would, new city, don't know anyone. I don't know anyone? Yeah. You don't know anyone. So oh, you're, you don't have the network yet. Okay. How would I, what would I do to get back on my feet? To, to the point that you're yeah. at today. So, yeah. so point where I'm at to today. To get you on the path to where you are today. Um, so I would... Uh, I basically go and I would start, I would find like some startups, mm-hmm. start knocking on doors and say like, Hey, I want to work. I work for free. Mm-hmm. Like, here's what I think I can do. Mm-hmm. Can I like come work? Mm-hmm. And I would just, I would just literally knock on doors until someone allowed me to work. And then, you know, I, whatever, stay wherever I could stay. If it's a shelter, just like save the money until I prove value mm-hmm. and then try to get my, you know, get on my feet with hopefully that company would start paying me when they realized that I was valuable. So have confidence in your skill, have yep. a level of humility, et cetera. Okay. We didn't touch on this as much in the beginning for a reason, but I do want to go back to that place because these stories have peaks and valleys. Sure. Let's take it back to the point where you're reevaluating your life. You had the situation with your family where yep. you, someone passed away. When you were going through that dark time, what music or movie or something like that did you listen to that helped you break through that dark time, if anything? Yeah, I think for me, it was, I can actually remember more listening to, I guess I would call it like, I guess like soulful music, you mm-hmm. know, it was like a little bit of Mariah Carey, a little mm-hmm. bit of Alicia Keys. It was yeah. just like whatever was on my iPod at the time. Yeah. Stuff that just like made me feel like there was like just a certain amount of warmth and love in the world. Yeah. And, you know, that's, I think what I really relied on. And then I actually really got into like watching random YouTube videos mm-hmm. because, you know, when you're just so sad, you just want to laugh. Yeah. So, you know, I found like, I found myself watching these random videos about like Japanese pranks. Like there's all these like crazy <laughs> TV shows in Japan yeah. where they do these crazy game shows and pranks and stuff. So I ended up watching that a bunch. Yeah. That just helped me to just feel like, you know. Stay positive. Yeah. And the world's like a good place and I'm going through a dark moment in time, but you know, it's going to be okay. Yeah. So instead of, you know, going... In a completely dark direction, you just try to stay optimistic and things like that. Yeah, I mean, like bittersweet. It's hard when you lose a family member. It's hard to not be really caught up in it and really have it affect a lot of your life. But you know, like my mom was like such a force in my life. It was hard for me to, you know, stay down for too long because I know that she was just. I knew she would just been so mad at me for yeah. not really pursuing my dream. Yeah, yeah. Do you have siblings? I don't have any siblings. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So we started this episode by. Um, Talking about Elena, who was, uh, I think she was a junior or a sophomore in college, yep. and you gave her great advice. So being where you are now, if you were a junior in college, what advice would you give yourself? It's a good question. That's a great question. So if I were in college now, I would spend a lot of time just talking to people about what they do. I think one of the big challenges I always had in college, once I realized I didn't want to go into medicine, was figuring out what's out there for me. And, you know, there's no amount of taking some online test that tells you, oh, you should be an accountant or whatever, that substitutes for actually going and talking to accountants or going and talking to people. And, you know, when you're in college, people really want to help you. 
right? Like, you know, you're in college. They remember their college days. They just want to be helpful. And so you have an alumni network that's out there that you can just reach out to. And I'm talking about like just saying, hey, you know, you are a friend of my parents and you do this. Can I talk to you about what that means and what life is like and, and why, like why you like your job and what skills you have? Or you are someone who graduated three years ago and I saw you at this conference. I'd love to grab coffee and just pick your brain. I'm trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. Like nine out of 10 times, people would be like, yes. Yeah. So knowing the roles that exist is really important. Then once you find out about the roles, talking to them about it. Yeah. I mean, once I think the hard part, the really the heavy lifting is knowing. Because once you know what you want to do, then it's like, okay, you probably know because you found someone who like does it, right? And they're probably willing at that point to like introduce you to a couple other people, yeah. right? And you probably, then you're like, okay, now I know what I want to do. And then you can, there's a certain amount of independence you have in figuring out like, okay, well, what else do I need to be doing once you get some direction? But it's like not having direction and just fall. I feel like most college kids just fall into whatever their first job is. I know I did. Yeah. It doesn't mean I didn't love it, but you fall into it. And then you've got like, you hit this like quarter life crisis, right? And so I fell into the quarter life crisis. And that's actually kind of how I got to where I went to when I was 25. It's like, what am I doing with myself? Like I'm teaching, this is great, but like what's next? And it ended up coming up with what I call like a list of my top 35 before 35. It's like, here are the 35 things I want to do before I'm 35. And they were like big swing things. Yeah. You know, like, so 17 of them were like professional and like 18 were personal. And it was like, okay, I wanted to learn another language. Right? I spoke Spanish fluently at the time. I wanted to know I wanted to get another master's degree because I had a master's in education, but like that wasn't it. And so when I did that, that's kind of like when I looked at opportunities, I looked at them in a new light because I was like, oh, like, oh, I can go and live in Switzerland and I can learn. I ended up learning Italian when I was in Switzerland. So I, I can do that. I can travel and that's on my list, right? Like I can have these, grow these leadership skills. That was on my list. So like, you know, being able to have a sense of what you want to do is so empowering, but it's so hard to come by. That most people I don't think really feel like figured out till probably the late twenties or early thirties. Yeah. 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 For many of us, I know for myself personally, when you're in college, you tend to see what your friends are doing. And a lot of the times people will just be either going to like, oh, I want to be in investment banking or I want to be in consulting. And you kind of forget to ask yourself why you're going to all those informational sessions. So and even before that, you try to visualize yourself working at these jobs without actually knowing what those jobs actually entail. Very little people will actually go and shadow an investment banker <laughs> or an analyst for like a day or two to understand what their job entails. So then once you actually get that job, you almost set yourself out on a trajectory of a couple of years following something that might not be the right fit for you. Yeah. So I love your point about doing informational sessions because that's the best way to understand like, are those people happy? Are they uh, enjoying their jobs? Like, maybe even if you are doing the informational session, maybe even ask them if, like, are they thinking of leaving their job right. yeah. or doing something else? Yeah. Right? And you don't even need to have a, a big family network to do this. Yeah. Like, because you're in college, you literally have the opportunity to leverage your school network mm -hmm. with, like, no pushback, right? No yeah. one's going to say to you, why are you reaching out to me as yeah. a college junior to figure out what you're trying to do with your life? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like you're never going to get that pushback. And related to your point about mentorship, once you do find somebody that believes in you and wants to invest in you, who are some of your mentors and what's the best advice that they've given you? It's a good question. So, I mean, I've really had only like a handful of mentors in my life. One of the, the best mentors I had was actually one of the deans of my college who unfortunately passed away, um, like actually a year after my mom passed away. Um, his name was Dean James McLeod. And he, he was just great. He's just like one of these guys who was just so calm and so focused. And he, you know, he had these habits of achievement and seven habits of achievement. 
And one of them, which I really kind of believe in, is being a giver, mm-hmm. right? Just finding a way to being a giver in your life and pursuing mastery and whatever it is. And by pursuing mastery, what he really meant was like, gain the skills that you need to be excellent at what you're doing. Doesn't mean you have to go down a rabbit hole, but really show and prove that you're doing things well. Then being a giver is like finding ways to give back because the more you give, the more you will receive in time. Yeah. Right. And so that's kind of what I try to practice when, especially when it comes to you know, meeting students on the road who are like recruiting or, you know, people reaching out to me. I try to be as helpful as possible within the constraints and like have them, if they can show that they're interested and they're mutually involved, then I will do what I can to give to them. Do you have, what are your plans for the future? What are my plans for the future? Yeah. I don't know. So that's super interesting. I mean, like I have a great situation at Facebook and Instagram. I love my job. I love the people I work with. I'm fortunate enough, you know, we do a lot of user research. So I travel around the world as part of my job. And that's really amazing. I don't know. You know, like I always have the itch to like do my own startup, but I don't think I will anymore. Um, I just had like my wife and I just had a baby seven months ago. And so like that's something where, you know, it changes your outlook and like your risk profile. Uh But for now, I'm happy. You know, I'll probably end up staying for a while. And then seeing if like, you know, there's a world in which, you know, I can have even more impact at like a company that really needs the kind of the skill set, the growth skill set that I've built at Facebook. Do you do community work or educational work out here? Not as much as I'd like to, which is like actually something I think about a lot. You know, my life had just been so torrid in the last few years. Like you can imagine between transitioning industries and transitioning coasts and having a kid and getting married that I've lost like kind of that focus. And it's something that I want to do more. But I think this is also one of the things I think is challenging is when you lose kind of that connectivity, it's really hard to figure out like, well, where do I go volunteer? Yeah. Right. Like, it's not like, you know, you don't have like a handbook of like, I'm just going to walk in and start doing something at this school one day. Yeah. So like, this is like my, my next big thing is like, where, like, how do I give more of my time yeah. to people that like I believe in? And like, this is one of the things like service was always ingrained in me, especially in high school that I want to do more of, but I, I actually don't even know where to start at this point. Yeah. As we learn more about places to give and local networks of support and things like that, we'll make sure we throw your way and related to ways that people listening to the podcast can get in touch with you. What would you say is the best way to do that? Email. Email? Yeah. First name dot last name at Gmail. There you go. Take, take all of them. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Make sure you take them up on it. Yeah. We'll see. Send, right. send me an email and I'll reply. Yeah. And remember what he said about out of 20 people, how many people reach out. So um, yeah. Thanks again for taking the time to, yeah. to speak with Great us. Great chat. We'll stay in touch. Yeah. No worries. I really appreciate it being here. Thanks for having awesome. me. Awesome. Thanks for coming. Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in. Let's break in.